I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. Today's thought from above is this. The good life is a deep and passionate emotional life. If you missed the pod episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we call Mind Discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, from Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above. Setting our minds on good, beautiful, and true thoughts, on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy. And that is why we do this podcast, to provide for you in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell upon so that your heart will be warmed and you will become an epiphany of grace. In the last episode, I talked about how I'm teaching a course at Friends University. It's a required course for all students called The Good Life. I, along with three other professors, teach this course, and it's been fascinating to begin to engage with today's young people about what they think a good life consists of. And I mentioned also in the last episode that there are three parts to the good life. There's life led well, that's the agential side, our choices our decisions, our actions, our behavior, our character. And then there's life feeling well, which is the affective side or the emotional side, the things that we feel and our emotions. And then third is life going well, which is the circumstantial side. But today I want to talk about that second part. What role do feelings play in the good life? What kind of emotional life is essential to a good life? Because it is important for sure. Here's what we all know. God designed us with capacities to think, that's our mind, to act, that's our will, and to feel, that is our emotions, the things that we daily experience. We're constantly having different emotions. So God designed us to think and to act and to feel. Feeling is important. We are not like Mr. Spock, the fictional character on Star Trek who as a Vulcan, he had no feelings. He was, Vulcans don't have any feelings. And that's kind of what made Spock fascinating. He was like, how could you live a life if you didn't have any feelings? Well, thankfully, we don't ever have to worry about that because we do have feelings, and we have them in spades. We feel a lot. We feel it all the time. So let me ask a question. What is your ideal emotional life? If you had the ability to wave a wand and say, well, this is my emotional life. It's going to be like this. What kinds of things would that consist of? Well, I imagine many of you think, well, I want to be happy. I mean, I'd like happiness is good. Contentment, that's, well, that's good. How about joy? Is that too much to ask? I'd love to have some joy. I like joy. Or how about inner peace? Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety and stress. Inner peace, that'd be nice. When we think about our ideal emotional life, we're probably not thinking about anger and sadness and grief and despair and anxiety, even though those are things we feel as well. But they're not ideal. They're not the things we say, oh, that's what I really want. If you just pay attention to our culture, what you're likely to hear is something similar to what one of my students said that I quoted last time, and that is basically whatever feels good to you. that's, That's what matters. I talked last time about utilitarianism, 
which is remove pain and increase pleasure. That's a dominant desire of many people. Or hedonism, that isn't my pleasure is what really matters. That's what we want to feel. And in fact, there's a course at Yale in the undergraduate. In fact, it's the most popular course at Yale. And its nickname is the happiness course. It's a, a course in positive psychology. And the course is really built around this idea of how do you develop a really healthy emotional life. It's a desire that we have. And it's a natural desire. Because when you have really bad feelings, it's hurtful. And we want to get rid of them. And when we have really good feelings, we want to keep them because that makes us feel good. But let's dig deeper into our feelings and emotions for a second. And I want to use an analogy that comes from Miroslav Wolf and, and Matt Crossman in their book, Life Worth Living. And they raise this hypothetical that I think is pretty fascinating. And it goes like this. If there were a drug that offered you lifelong pleasure that would make you feel great for no reason, with no side effects, and you'd feel great no matter what happens in your life. I mean, the death of a loved one, death of a pet, loss, divorce, broken relationships, disappointment, things that really, oh, that really hurts. None of those things would change how you feel. No matter what, you would feel great. So here's the question. Would you take that drug? Now, at first, we may be tempted to think, well, yeah. I mean, if there's a drug that's going to make me feel great all the time, no side effects, and what happens in my life is not going to change that, bad things can happen, and I won't. Yeah, I think I might. But again, we got to think a little more deeply here. Would you really want to? Because the consequences of this drug would be this. You would never experience genuine feelings. Think about the elation of meeting the love of your life for the first time. I remember when I met my wife, Megan, for the first time. Wow! I felt like I floated on air for an hour. Or the exhilaration of meeting your, your first child for the first time. I remember when Jacob was born, and I saw him through the window in the nursery, and I was like, that, that's my son. Oh my, That feeling was palpable. I, I, I can't even describe. Joy doesn't even come close. Or when you have really true friendship, that deep, incredible sense of purpose and meaning that happens when you have a really strong, or the delight of beauty. I remember when Megan and I were in England and St. Martin's in the Field, and we, we went to this classical music concert, and they played Vivaldi's Four Seasons, all four seasons, these incredible musicians, and this sunset in London and the candles, and these musicians, and the sound. And when they got to the end, I looked over at Megan, and she looked over at me, and we were both crying. We were literally weeping at the beauty that we just heard. Or the satisfaction of accomplishment, when you work really hard at something, and you've put your all into it, and it happens, you, you achieved it. That feeling that comes, those are real. If you took that drug, you'd never actually know that. You wouldn't feel any of those things. For All of it would be kind of a faux feeling, a fake sense of well-being. But okay, you'd also never experience sorrow or grief or anger or despair. Okay, true. But would that be something desirable as well? Let's dig a little deeper. What, what does the scripture say about our feelings? Well, if we're going to talk about God, we need to talk about Jesus because Jesus is the answer to what is God like. Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
I say that to my students all the time. The only answer to the question, what is God like, is Jesus. So what do we learn from Jesus about our emotional lives? There are a couple of false narratives I've discovered that people have when it comes to Jesus and emotions. One is that many people think, well, Jesus never actually felt anything. He was kind of like Mr. Spock, maybe. He had this stoic kind of apathy where he would come into the room and not really feel anything because he was above that. He wouldn't feel sad. He wouldn't feel happy. He wouldn't be moved by anything. But that's just not true. And a second false narrative about Jesus and emotions is that Jesus, well, he only felt the good ones. He felt happiness. He felt joy. He felt peace. But he didn't, he didn't feel anger. He didn't feel frustration. But again, is that true? When you dig into the Gospels, you begin to see, no, wait, this is a guy who had a deep, complex emotional life. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you. My joy, he said. Jesus was a person of joy. He wouldn't say that if he didn't have joy. My joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. Jesus felt joy. Jesus also felt compassion. There are over a dozen times we learn in the Gospels that Jesus felt compassion. It literally says it. Matthew 20, 34 is an example. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. Moved with compassion. It's everywhere. And of course, we know Jesus wept. Very famously, he wept over Jerusalem. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, it says, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. He did. He, he, he actually cried. Well, no, he was just pretending to. No, he really cried. But let's, let's look at some of the more difficult emotions that we might say, oh, he didn't feel that. Jesus experienced irritation on a regular basis if you read Mark's gospel alone. Sometimes to the point of, of being just completely impatient. There are about a half dozen times where it says Jesus spoke sternly to people. <laughs> You don't speak sternly to someone unless you're really frustrated with them. He was consistently frustrated with his disciples, with their lack of faith. He was, he was very angry in many cases with the Pharisees and their misunderstanding of the gospel and what God was all about. He also felt incredible distress. In Mark 3, 5, it says Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled in his soul. And in Mark 14, 33, it says he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Irritation, frustration, distress, sorrow, anger. He felt these things. And in doing so, he showed us that to have a good life is to have a deep emotional life. Andy Tix, PhD psychologist whose life work has been on the emotional life of Jesus, says this, Jesus seemed to have emotions all of us can appreciate and connect with. It doesn't fit the picture of serenity I think most people have of the great religious leaders. The impression I get is of someone who is the opposite of superficial. To put it simply, Jesus seemed to possess a deep and passionate emotional life. Oh, that's worth repeating there. Jesus seemed to possess a deep and passionate emotional life. That's a part of what it means to be a Christ follower. For those of us who are setting our minds on things above, it is important that we recognize that strong emotions come with it. I love 
Romans 12, where Paul just gives these really quick, short, staccato kind of admonitions to people, to the, to the Christ followers in Rome. Let's hear them now. These are great. From Romans 12, 9 through 15. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Love one another with mutual affection. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Love, hate, affection, zeal. Rejoicing, weeping. Paul's saying, feel these things, Christians. It's important. It's essential. It's a part of living a good life. And we love feelings. They're important. It's great to have those kinds of pleasures that are just fun. Historically, we would call these hedonic kind of pleasures, things like ice cream and amusement parks. Why do we go to amusement parks? Because they're amusing. We want, you know, we want to have fun. I want to get on the ride and have the fun. Why do I like ice cream? It's great. The problem with those kinds of pleasures is that they kind of fade. They're evanescent. They're here and then they're gone. Oh my gosh, ice cream, and then it's gone. It's, it's great for a moment. Oh, the roller coaster was a blast, and then it's over. We can't live for those kinds of feelings. You can't build your life on those. They're fine. You can't live for them. If you do live for them, and you're, you're in real trouble, Dallas Willard would say, you, your, your life is going to go badly. But we, we take those and we enjoy them. But the deeper kinds of pleasures, which Aristotle called eudaimonic pleasures, those are the kind of pleasures that we can really invest in. Things like quality time with family and friends. You know those feelings when you're having a wonderful time with, with close friends and family and you're, you're connecting. That feeling is great for many of us being out in nature, just going out to some beautiful spot and soaking it all in. Appreciating art and beauty. Listening to, to music or gazing upon some painting or a sunset or whatever, we just, it feel, beauty fills us with a kind of awe. Or engaging in a hobby that you really love. I like to think of those kinds of hobbies that when you're doing them, time just passes. You don't even know it. You're engaging in it and you're just so involved in it that the clock isn't even there. And certainly serving other people. One of the deepest pleasures we have in life comes actually from serving other people, giving of ourselves. Wolf and Crossman put it this way in their book, Life Worth Living. How a good life feels has to do with getting in sync with something deep about the world, not just getting what we want. That's a great one there. Getting in sync with something deep about the world. The world is full of beauty. The world is full of people. When we engage and we really connect and see it, we will feel things. Those are the real feelings that you can build your life on. Things that make a big difference. Those are the ones that really last. I had two very strong emotions, and they illustrate these two different kinds. One is the more hedonic, which is just like a wow, wow pleasure that's quick. And nothing really wrong with it, but it's not something you build your life on. And the other one was a more eudaimonic kind of pleasure. And here, here there are the two. The first happened when I achieved a goal that I didn't really set out to accomplish, but it was something that I kind of thought, wow, that'd be cool to do one day. And it was this. My, when my fourth book was published, 
about a month or so after the book had been out, my agent called and said, hey, your book hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I went, come on, no way. She said, no, it did. So I checked it out, and sure enough, it had hit the best. I mean, now, look, it was the top 20 books, and I was 19, but hey, that's, that's, in the, that's on the list. And I remember feeling all kinds of strong emotions. Uh, I was overcome with, with a sense of joy, like, oh, my goodness, this was, it was such hard work, and I'm so glad that the book is selling. This is great. And a little bit of pride. You know, there's a, lot, a bunch of feelings came over me. But what was fascinating to me was how evanescent it was, how quickly it faded. Within a couple of days, it just didn't mean what it meant. And with it came kind of some pressure because then I started to think, wow, does every book I have to write be on the bestseller list? And boy, how long is it going to stay on the bestseller list? And anything that I really thought that that was going to give me, it just didn't. But here's the second experience that I had that created emotion. I got a card from a young woman who actually it was a card and a letter. And she told me the story that she was at, at the end of a rope. She was in a really bad place and she chose to end her life. And she took some pills and she had basically checked out. Fortunately, someone found her in time. She got to the hospital. She was in a coma, but she did pull through. And when she had awakened, she noticed that there was a book and her pastor had come and laid a copy of The Good and Beautiful God in her hospital room. He wasn't there, but he left it with a note. And she began reading the book. And in her letter, she explained to me for the first time in her life, she began to say, I think God actually does love me. I think there's a reason for my life. I want to live my life. I want to make a difference. And she said, I want to thank you for writing this book because now I want to live. Now, which do you think means more to me? Making the New York Times bestseller list or that letter? No question. That letter means more to me. I'd take a thousand bestseller lists and trade them a minute easily for just that kind of response because that's a deep kind of feeling that really lasts, that really matters because that's what God has designed us for. And even some of the feelings that are hard for us, things like sorrow and sadness and grief, I wouldn't trade them. The feelings that I felt when our daughter was born, when Madeline was born and she wasn't supposed to live and she was born with some birth defects and a chromosomal disorder, the grief and pain and sorrow was real. But I've learned that sorrow is holy because it puts us in touch with that suffering that courses through the whole world. It's a holy thing. And grief is something that God's designed us to feel. There's a place for it. That's why Paul would say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's a part of the nature of reality. Well, how do we live into a healthy kind of emotional life? Well, I would say this, and I'm going to quote Dallas Willard again. The number one spiritual illness of our day is hurry sickness. We're living such a fast-paced life, we don't even feel much, and maybe that's why we're doing it. We, maybe we don't want to feel things. We're just so busy, so hurried, so overcommitted. But I would say if you wanted to develop a deeply satisfying emotional life, slow down. Slow down. Say no to things. You're going to have to say no if you're going to create margin. And you have to say no to good things. You're going to have to say no to things that 
have some value in them, good things. He says, you know what? I just can't do that. I've got to create margin. I've got to have some space to slow down. Because then, if you can slow down, then you can begin to savor the life that you have. One of the practices that I do regularly is I take time each day. I get a cup of coffee. And I, if I can, if the weather's permitting, most of the time it is, I go out of my deck in the morning and I just look at the beautiful world that I live in. I have an app on my phone called Merlin that picks up the sounds of birds. One recent morning, there were seven different birds in my backyard, morning doves and robins and blue jays and sparrows and grackles. Even a woodpecker wasn't too far off. And I just sit there and say, Lord, you made a beautiful world, and I savor it. Slow down. Savor the moments of life. Be present. Go slow. And then you can connect. Savor something every day. Maybe it's just a nice shower, a delicious meal, a great walk. Any experience that you have that you say, I'm going to live into this. It's a way to value the fact that God made you people who feel. And it's essential to a good life. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.